Our latest mini-series, Crypto for Institutions, is brought to you by anchor sponsor Coinbase and leading crypto service providers Chainalysis, Falcon X, MG Stover, and Bitwise. This four-part mini-series over the next two weeks is my attempt to learn alongside you about the growing interest from early mover institutions in introducing cryptocurrency exposure to their portfolios. With so much to learn, we focused on investing, the macro case, the path to entry, and investment strategies to pursue. My conversation with Chris Dixon in January is a nice add-on to this series and is replayed in the feed. For the best primer I've come across on this ecosystem, I highly recommend listening to Patrick O'Shaughnessy's three-part Hash Power miniseries on Invest Like the Best from 2017 and still highly relevant today. My special thanks go out to Coinbase Institutional for anchoring this miniseries and introducing me to some of the terrific guests that participate. Coinbase Prime is a leading prime brokerage for digital assets. Its custody and trading services come up repeatedly as a safe haven on-ramp to the digital world in these conversations. Visit prime.coinbase.com to learn more. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can keep up to date by visiting capitalallocatorspodcast.com. My guest on the third episode of Crypto for Institutions is Seth Jins, managing partner and head of liquid investments at CoinFund, which he joined a year ago after a 17-year run as a large-cap growth equity research analyst at Jenison Associates. While in that role, Seth began angel investing a decade ago and became an early investor in Coinbase, Bitcoin, and Ethereum, which eventually led to diving into the space full-time. Our conversation widens the discussion of crypto investments beyond Bitcoin and Ethereum with discussions of base layer protocols, decentralized finance, and non-fungible tokens. We discuss Seth's background, how he invests in these markets, and some of the key issues and risks investing in the space. As you'll hear in these conversations, the infrastructure for institutions to participate in the space is firmly established and led by service providers whose names may be new to institutions. We're pleased that some of the leaders across research, trading, administration, and fund management have joined Coinbase in sponsoring this mini-series. You woke up Monday morning and 149,000 Bitcoin flowed into exchanges over the weekend. $7.5 billion worth of cryptocurrency is moving fast, and you don't know why. With Chainalysis Market Intel, you'd know this is only the seventh time ever that weekend inflows have surpassed 145,000 Bitcoin. You would also know that these large inflows are followed by price declines, and you'd be ready to trade. But you haven't subscribed yet, so you don't have this insight from Chainalysis Chief Economist Philip Gradwell. Don't be left behind. Subscribe today at chainalysis.com slash allocators. 
FalconX is a leading crypto financial services company providing institutions trading, credit, and clearing across all major crypto pairs. Fortune 1000 companies, family offices, and asset managers turn to FalconX as a trusted partner in the cryptocurrency market. FalconX currently services over 250 institutions globally, and its backers include Axel, American Express, Coinbase Ventures, and Fidelity. Visit falconx.io to sign up and supercharge your crypto trading abilities. Since 2014, M.G. Stover has been the leading fund administrator for digital asset funds. With proprietary technology and dedicated teams focused on this asset class, M.G. Stover has proven expertise to streamline your crypto accounting and reporting needs. Give your investors peace of mind and go with the most trusted firm in crypto, M.G. Stover. The Bitwise 10 Crypto Index Fund, ticker BITW, is the first and largest publicly traded crypto index fund in the U.S., The fund is managed by Bitwise Asset Management, a leading provider of crypto funds based in San Francisco with over $1 billion in assets. BitW primarily holds Bitcoin and Ethereum today, along with smaller allocations to up-and-comers like DeFi assets. The index fund rebalances monthly to keep you on the right side of the fast-changing space. To learn more, search for ticker BITW or visit bitwiseinvestments.com. Please enjoy my conversation with Seth Jins in this third episode of Crypto for Institutions. Seth, thanks so much for joining me. Ted, thanks for having me. Excited to do this. Well, why don't we start with your background and how it led to your interest and involvement in this space? My background is in the large cap growth public equities world. So that was 18 years. Back in 2012, I said, you know what? There's a lot of exciting stuff happening in the early stage startup world. I want to get involved. And I looked for deal flow out of Y Combinator and came across Coinbase. Coinbase was an angel investment of mine back in 2012. And that kind of opened my eyes to everything happening in crypto. And then for the next eight years, it was a journey of traveling, meeting developers, going to conferences, building a network, all with the view that at some point when this became sufficiently mature, I'd want to start a fund. Okay, wait, let's circle back a little bit here. So you're a large cap growth equity investor for 18 years. Where in that equation do you start deciding, number one, you're interested in angel investing and early stage investing? And then number two, how in the world do you spend all this time on crypto when you're doing this other work? So it's actually funny. In 2009, I started doing residential investing. So in Tempe, Arizona, and I was there for a Honeywell investor meeting, had a a half a day free, went to a real estate agent and asked them to show me around, right? This was the depths of the GFC. Built a little operation there with a real estate agent, a mortgage broker, a property servicer. We were looking for north of eight and a half caps at at that time. And we bought a bunch of properties. These were all $50,000, $100,000 properties. The market recovered much more quickly than I was expecting. 
reinvested then in some commercial real estate, which was lagging a little behind, had built a little network getting deal flow there. And then that market started to recover. And I was also thinking I wasn't sure that I wanted to make a a seven-year bet at that point. When I saw the macro environment being one where we had a deflationary overhang and a Fed at the time that wasn't willing to commit to uh, consistent stimulus. So my thinking was we have this deflationary overhang. I want to go to the most secular growth segment of the investable universe, which even if we have another big downturn, we'll have a big growth opportunity. And I thought, okay, that's early stage startup investing. It turns out right after I started doing that, Bernanke came out with unlimited QE, Jackson Hole of 2012, and the rest is history. But I really, I got bitten by the early stage investing bug, really loved it and continue to love it and passionate about rolling up my sleeves, getting involved, helping early stage companies. And I do that now on the venture side. So before we dive into what happened on your Coinbase investment and on, what other early stage investments did you make? So there were a bunch of investments that were kind of friends of friends investments before Coinbase. Coinbase was one of the first Y Combinator investments. I also invested in Instacart out of that vintage. A lot of these investments were on Funders Club, an accredited investor crowdfunding platform. So I invested in Funders Club itself. And then I've built up a portfolio of about 150 angel investments. And I'd say about 70, 80% of them have their provenance in one way or another back to Funders Club. Either it was a direct investment there, or I got to know the CEO of one of the investments and they introduced me to, to other investments or other angels that I met through Funders Club. So really productive deal flow network and high graded, which was fantastic. So just for perspective, as we dive in, what was your lens on deciding what to invest in and what to turn down? I really came into startup investing saying, okay, I'm a deep fundamental investor from the large cap world. I get this. I do fundamental analysis on the companies that I'm looking at and make decisions. And what I realized really quickly was early stage investing is quite different from more mature later stage investing. And I sort of came up with a rubric of the quick decision process for these early stage investments. They had to be end markets that I was very excited about, and I I have a lot of interest, so that's an easy one. Teams that I just loved and was really passionate about, but then no yellow or red flags. I always look for warm intros or having the deal flow come through the channels that we were discussing earlier. And part of that is just a test of the founder's network, their grit, their ability to kind of get to investors that they want to engage with. And the last thing is just like no big concerns up front. And look, there are going to be plenty of early stage startups that have big concerns up front and end up overcoming them. But my view is, You're going to have roadblocks come up along the way. If I'm building a broad angel portfolio, why not start with companies that kind of have a clear path? The last thing that I'll say on that is I started out kind of modulating my investment size up or down based on the alchemy of how those different factors came together. And what I realized was I was really bad at upsizing the right investments. In fact, I was downsizing the investments that ended up being the biggest winners So I kind of decided level set all investments. Oftentimes when you check off all of the boxes associated with that, except you say, you know, gosh, their direct comparators take Instacart, their direct comparators are 
Amazon and Google and all of these big players, Fresh Direct in certain markets, this is like a little lower probability than the rest of the early stage portfolio. What you end up figuring out is in that type of competitive environment, if they're able to be successful, the startup can accrete in value much more quickly than standard startups and can go much higher than standard startups. So that lent more credence to the idea of just level setting all of these investments. So you find your way into Coinbase. And how did that evolve with your interest in the crypto and blockchain world? I believe luck favors the prepared mind. So I'd actually read a New Yorker article about Bitcoin in 2011. That kind of primed my perspective. Invested in Coinbase. And once you have skin in the game, that's like the catalyst for having everything associated with that space just capture your attention. So once I was invested in Coinbase, I set up a bunch of Google alerts. I was following what was happening with Bitcoin, but also what was happening outside of Bitcoin. And there were a handful of coins outside of Bitcoin at that time. And I started to see a lot of really interesting buzz around Ethereum. This was just at the ICO period in 2014. But I said, I want to put a little bit of a bet here. I think this is quite interesting. A lot of people who understand way more about what's happening here than I do think this is quite intriguing. So I invested a little bit in the ICO and then all of this starts to snowball. You have more and more chips on the table, more things to pay attention to. And over time, you start to have a a 101 understanding of what's happening. So if we take a perspective on this ecosystem. On the one hand, six years ago is the stone ages for this world. On the other hand, it was only you know six or seven years ago. We've talked already in this miniseries a little bit about the macro case and the infrastructure evolution for institutions. I'd love to get your perspective over the last almost 10 years now. What's been the trajectory in both crypto assets and the blockchain that leads itself towards this institutional interest today? I'd say the trajectory toward institutional interest has been just as exponential in development as the price trajectory of, let's just say, Bitcoin as a proxy for the broader space. I remember back in 2012, sitting in my regulated mutual fund seat, feeling a little uneasy interacting with the ecosystem. I remember the first SEC filing that mentioned Bitcoin and kind of feeling a level of validation, a level of excitement around this coming into the just the first fold of mainstream. And it was the S1 where PayPal spun out of eBay. From there, we started seeing more engagement. 2017 was another big watershed moment. But what was really surprising about the period from 2017 to today, and really I'd say 2017 through 2019, was the capital that flowed into the space and the development talent that came into the space out of the 2017 bubble just completely changed the face of crypto, completely changed what institutional infrastructure looked like, completely changed the core players in the space and completely changed the investment paradigm. Going from really supply demand dynamics for individual tokens to an investment paradigm that looks quite analogous to equities with fundamentals that you can track, you can run valuation metrics, and you can put price targets on various tokens and really use the same investing skill set that one would use in equities or credit for crypto. And, and that didn't exist back in 2017. So as we walk through some of these 
key, let's just start with kind of macro ideas relating to the space. It still seems like Bitcoin and to a lesser extent, Ethereum command most of the attention of institutions in particular looking into this outside of maybe a venture capital investment they make in a fund. Where are you seeing the next level of significant potential investable interest? So two different ways of approaching that question. So as a firm and what we're investing in, we're seeing a lot of really interesting developments in ecosystems outside of Bitcoin and Ethereum. So we're very bullish on Bitcoin, very bullish on Ethereum, but then a large part of the portfolio is kind of exciting, innovative developments outside of those two core ecosystems. Base layers and DeFi. Polkadot is one challenger base layer. And I think that the broader mainstream investment community will start to hear a lot about developments in the Polkadot ecosystem over the course of this year. Solana, another challenger base layer. Flow, a base layer that's associated with one of our investments, Dapper Labs, that's doing MBA Top Shot. One thing that we should maybe talk about stepping back is why are there challenger base layers? What's the purpose of having another blockchain when you already have Bitcoin and Ethereum? I think this is a really exciting element of the crypto community. It's it's open source, it's global. And what you see is when bottlenecks emerge, when there's an unmet need, developers come to the rescue and create new solutions that solve that problem that's not being addressed by existing solutions. So each of those other communities and blockchains, and they're all going to have some degree of interoperability over time, has trade-offs between decentralization, security, speed, broader functionality that meet specific needs in a different way from Ethereum or Bitcoin. What are the most commonly talked about bottlenecks? Transaction fees are seen as bottleneck number one. And I'd say the fact that blocks on average are confirmed every 10 minutes is impractical for payments on layer one, on the Bitcoin blockchain itself. So those, those tend to be the two biggest criticisms of blockchain's functionality. Now, what's fantastic about Bitcoin's functionality it's the fact that it has a limited set of functions, which means that the security attack surface is limited. So it's very secure. So even though transaction fees are high, even though blocks are confirmed roughly every 10 minutes, this use case, this product market fit of digital gold need for high security. It just it fits Bitcoin incredibly well. And because this is an open marketplace, a competitive marketplace, that's why we've seen that digital gold use case really catch on for Bitcoin in particular. How about the bottlenecks on Ethereum? That's right. So for Ethereum, the biggest bear case or bottleneck today is the fact that transaction fees have spiked as activity in decentralized finance, which is really the first product market fit for ETH, has picked up. So a little bit of a... High quality problem, immense amount of activity in DeFi going from under 700 million of collateral locked in the system at the beginning of 2020 to around 40 billion today. What that's done is that's led to pricing to have your transactions confirmed skyrocketing and really making a lot of lower value transactions. And these are transactions that are kind of part and parcel of interacting with DeFi 
cost prohibitive. Now, what that's led to by virtue of this being open source, open competition and global is both the development of an investment in these challenger base layers that we've been talking about, as well as scaling solutions for Ethereum itself. And these scaling solutions take two different forms. One is a migration to Ethereum 2.0. Just think of this as a different form of Ethereum that will be able to scale in a way that the current version cannot. And the second dynamic for Ethereum specifically is what's called layer two. These are solutions that include things like batching transactions as a way to bring down transaction fees. So they all have their advantages and disadvantages. But when you see a bottleneck, it creates this forcing function that very quickly leads to a bunch of really smart people globally trying to fix the problem. You know, a lot of the chatter back in 2017, maybe to a lesser extent today, is this question of, you know, when will we see cash flows? When will we see use cases? You mentioned DeFi, decentralized finance, which is increasingly seen payments, lending, and other things as one of those use cases. I'd love to hear your perspective on the evolution of DeFi and where we are today. As we were talking about a little earlier, collateral locked in DeFi has just skyrocketed over the last year. Another core aspect, DeFi is really borrowing and lending protocols, it's decentralized exchanges, and it's stablecoins. Those are the three big buckets that we like to use. The collateral we talked about, decentralized exchange volumes, similar trajectory to collateral. July of last year, four and a half billion or so of trading volumes. That was more than all of 2019 combined. Fast forward to January of this year, 60 billion of trading volume. So just this exponential growth curve. Really two core innovations in our view that have led to this big pickup in activity across DeFi. One is what's called governance tokens. So these are what I'd say equity analogous types of tokens. They have voting rights for the protocol. These voting rights, though, go beyond voting rights that you would see in a proxy statement for an equity. They're actually voting rights. You can propose changes to the way that the protocol operates and bring a vote on that. So they end up almost being management decisions as well as proxy decisions. These protocols generate revenue. Some of the decentralized exchanges take 30 basis points in fees, and those revenues over time could flow to the governance token holders. So that's kind of one of the core innovations. And then the second core innovation was using these governance tokens as an incentive to get users to come and try out protocols. So hey, come and lock some collateral in our borrowing and lending protocol, earn a yield on it, and we'll also give you a little bit of our governance token as a reward for using our protocol. And of course, people are looking at where the prices of those protocols are going. They expect them to accrete in, over time as they see the activity of that protocol go up. It was a bootstrapping mechanism for these protocols by offering a little bit of the governance token as a kicker to the yield that you're getting by depositing into the protocol. Non-fungible tokens, which seems to have been in the news a lot. I'd love you to walk through you know, what they are. So NFTs are actually a very specific type of token that right now lives on the Ethereum blockchain. And think of these as scarce digital goods. Really, the first use cases were digital art. 
And what Dapper is doing, though, is using them for the modern day equivalent of basketball cards. So these are basketball highlight reels. You go in and you buy a pack, just like you would buy a pack of basketball cards. And you can then trade the highlight reels that you get on the NBA Top Shot marketplace. And it's just an insane opportunity to drive fan engagement during COVID. They're getting a lot of interest from all of the broader sports leagues now. It had generated $100 million of revenue in the first four months, five months of the marketplace. Valuation of their latest round rumored at over $2 billion. This is now a pre-IPO business and really showing the first real crossover use case of NFTs, scarce digital goods, collectibles as a, a crossover into mainstream. And by the way, a crossover where the NFT and blockchain component is abstracted away. And that's actually what we think blockchain and crypto is going to look like going forward. Mainstream users don't have to know that they're interacting with a blockchain. What's really cool is like in the future we envision, they'll get all of the benefits from these blockchains without having to know whether, do you know if your video service is on AWS or Google Cloud or Azure? It doesn't matter to you. In very much the same way that the blockchain that it's on, as long as it's functional, it's powerful, it does everything that that the service needs, and interoperable as well, you won't need to know which blockchain you're on. One other thing I'll add on NFTs is they cross over into DeFi. So another big use case for NFTs would be the title for a home or the title for a car that's being used as collateral for auto loans. So you can imagine then creating structured products in DeFi that all have these NFTs at their core. So instead of having structured products back in the, the global financial crisis where no one really understood the cash flow dynamics of the underlying constituent mortgages, you could have them as an NFTs, fully prosecutable, real-time on the blockchain, seeing whether the payments are current, actually then being able to pull in real-time sensorized data out of those housing markets to be able to adjust your valuation models based on what's happening on the ground at that time. Commercial real estate, foot traffic monitors, payments rails monitors. So this is really the future of investing. And a lot of it is kind of emerging out of the organic innovation that we're seeing come out of crypto, which is what's really, really exciting. As all of these innovations and changes are happening, I'd love to circle back to your path and where you landed here at CoinFund. At CoinFund, I wear a few different hats. We're a high growth startup investment firm founded by my partner, Jake Brookman, back in 2015. We started out as an early stage venture firm, really engaged with the New York ecosystem, in particular, Jake's a technologist with a quant trading background. And he came across, I'd say, Ethereum and the Ethereum ecosystem really early and saw investing in the ecosystem as the best way that he could contribute to really growing it. And what I love to include as part of our origin story is a lot of funds, particularly in crypto, start at kind of the height of a bull market. 2015 was the deep, dark depths of a bear market. The bull market peaked Thanksgiving of 2013 at 1100 for Bitcoin. And Bitcoin was like, 
below 200 when Jake was like, I need to start an investment firm. And it kind of shows how enthralled he was by the technology, how important that was to the founding mission of CoinFund. And it's still very much our North Star guiding mission today. Fast forward to 2018, we launched our second primarily venture fund that's done very well, really raised our profile within the ecosystem. And then when I joined, we launched our first pure liquid hedge fund. Again, the idea was, okay, we have a, our 2018 fund was structured such that we could participate in liquid markets and then also have a side pocketed illiquid component. What we're doing now is kind of splitting those out. We have the liquid opportunities really looking at the more mature side of the ecosystem and investing in real innovation with a fundamental research and traditional equities risk management bias. And then we're launching a new venture fund soon as well. So I'd love to dive into all these aspects of an investment process. And let's start with you brought the lens of a large cap growth equity investor with some startup experience. How do you go about thinking about your investment process in this space? And maybe just walk right through it by starting with what does liquid mean? So liquid means that the token trades either OTC or through exchanges or through DEXs, decentralized exchanges. And the investment process looks a ton like the equities process that I was doing at Jenison all of those years. And that's why I think the transition was actually pretty straightforward. I mean, we talked to teams, we talked to people who are at all different touch points throughout the ecosystem to derive a broader picture of what's happening. We build models of where we think the revenue is going to go for these protocols, what we think the addressable market is. And we figure out what price targets make sense. Now, there's kind of an interesting angle here where in equities, there's a little bit more of a solid line between fundamental analysis and quant analysis. And there's that gray area of quantumental and you have alt data being fed in. I'd say everything in crypto is kind of solidly in that quantumental bucket because you have a lot of real time data that's visible on the blockchain. And what we're always doing is triangulating between the very soft or subjective dynamics that we're getting from talking to various ecosystem participants and combining that with our own quant analysis, as well as the analysis or prosecuting what we're seeing on the blockchain. And that can be monitoring uh, wallet activity, that can be monitoring trading activity on an ongoing basis, that can be monitoring changes in popularity of different smart contracts. At this point in time, how much of what you're assessing are trading dynamics in comparison to, say, longer-term investment themes in protocols that are getting developed? That's a really interesting question. And I'd say by virtue of, I think one of our core advantages at CoinFund is being relatively small and having venture through to liquid crypto and having both partner and analyst resources that are all looking across the entire gamut from early stage through to later. The dialogue that we have in our morning meeting every day for an hour where we're talking about everything from venture through to liquid really spans the earliest embryonic companies within crypto that really have a vision but no product yet all the way through to projects that have demonstrable traction that we can track on the blockchain. And 
in crypto, the time from early stage to liquid is much shorter than in equity. So you can go from being this embryonic company to being relevant in liquid crypto in six months and having a 500 million or billion dollar network value. So we're constantly drawing connections between what we're seeing emerge in the early stage and how to tie that into not just what we're seeing real time in the liquid markets, but how that informs where the liquid markets are likely to go in the next year, in the next two years. And that really informs position sizing on the liquid side. So we could have a protocol that's just going from win to win to win. And we're seeing that on the liquid side in their adoption and engagement. But we're starting to see an early stage venture, some really novel competitors come in with something that's different, something that's not in the liquid markets today, but that could be directly competitive in a relatively short period of time. It absolutely affects how we think about risk management and how we think about position sizing for those liquid assets today. I'd love to walk through maybe an example of the process and just start with where you're sourcing these ideas from. There's certainly an element of thematic. I think that's a benefit of having venture and liquid under the same house. We're constantly thinking about what's happening in the next one, three, five, ten years and taking long-term views. So we have that thematic overlay. We're talking to a lot of other funds in the space. The community is very collegial, but there's also this dynamic of chat groups. And, and this is like a very interesting dynamic. So this is on Discord. This is on Telegram. And I think an element of crypto that really appeals to the younger generations is the fact that all of the big projects have these chat groups. The founders of the projects from the CEO through to the CTO and everyone else that's working to push the community forward is in these chat groups. And you can be an average investor that says, I think that this new protocol looks super exciting. I have some questions about it though, or I have some suggestions, or why aren't you doing this this way? Or guess what? I'm a coder and I think I could improve this function for you. Would it be okay if I helped you work through the dynamics there? So the fundamental research function starts in the exact same way that it would for the average 25, 30-year-old that says, hey, I think I might want to invest in this new protocol and I want to learn more about it. So it's the chat groups, it's white papers, and then we reach out and get the team on the phone and really start to dig into what they're doing dig into their vision for where things are going. And that's very important because, of course, we're talking to a lot of different projects. There's a lot going on from a competitive dynamic fluidity perspective. So a big part of the check is understanding that they understand some of the latest trends and changes and some of the emerging competitors. And then that's really when we start putting pen to paper and figure out how large we think the addressable market could be and think about how a protocol like that would likely be valued, not just in the current market environment, but in a market environment of where we think things will be six months or a year down the road based on where the new protocol is and its development. So walk me through an example, maybe starting with one of the themes you're excited about to a particular protocol and then the work you do on it in that process. 
I think a great example is a borrowing and lending protocol. I've gotten to know Stani and Jordan, two of the principals there over the course of the last year and change. And the process really started out by saying, okay, what's the competitive advantage of this protocol and this team? And what we started to see, because there are very successful other borrowing and lending protocols out there, and we're actually big fans of a lot of them, Compound Maker. What we saw with Ave was an iteration on development and openness to community engagement. And I think Community engagement became a very big theme last year. It's always been a dynamic within crypto, but really governance tokens and driving an iterative development process and the chat groups really bringing in a bigger fold of users and developers into these ecosystems really caught its stride when you had this skin in the game with governance tokens that could actually vote on protocol. So We saw this greater level of engagement. We saw a a fast pace of innovation. And then we were tracking engagement with the protocol itself and really just saw that they were seeing a lot of adoption and outpacing some of their peers really because of the new product sets that they were adding. Some really innovative product sets that didn't exist anywhere else in crypto at the time. Likewise, I'd say a, a protocol that we've been very excited about is called SushiSwap. This is one of the big decentralized exchanges. And what was fascinating about SushiSwap, a little bit of a tumultuous start, and people can read up about the details there, but then some really broad engagement from some of the biggest players in both centralized exchanges as well as decentralized finance, getting behind the protocol, helping to iterate the protocol helping to iterate the UI UX, so making it more user-friendly, gamifying it, and we started seeing SushiSwap's market share really start to take off. And that was one of the biggest factors in driving our further engagement. So when you talk about doing fundamental work on one of these investments, what does that mean in this space? So fundamental work means evaluating the code base all the way through to evaluating the competitive dynamics of that particular subsector and how that new company or protocol fits into those broad dynamics. So it's everything that you would think of with regard to fundamental analysis for equities plus some. How do you think about structuring your portfolio? Very interesting question. So I think of it very much the way that I would an equities portfolio. There are varying degrees of risk that we're taking on with different protocols. Oftentimes there's a very interesting novel new concept. Let's say it's a primitive that allows you to build structured products on Ethereum and it doesn't have any activity yet. It's very risky. It hasn't really been battle tested from a security perspective either, but it's certainly in the lead in that vertical and we want exposure. That might be a 50 basis point position or a one point position. Whereas something like Aave that has been battle tested has a lot of collateral locked in it. It hasn't been hacked. It's, I'd say, probably lower risk, slightly lower reward as well, but a very high reward relative to just about anything in the traditional investment world. 
and still in the first or second inning of its development, that could be in the 5 to 10% range on an initial cost basis. So I'd say that first layer is kind of traditional equity sizing based on risk and conviction. But then we put in an overlay of liquidity risk management. And there's a wide range of liquidity of these tokens going from small cap up through Bitcoin, the largest, most liquid. And we want to make sure that we're risk managing the portfolio in a way that where we would be able to exit positions or reduce risk in a reasonable amount of time if fundamentals were to materially change. So that's a big component of portfolio construction as well. What does a portfolio look like? So I'll take liquid and venture because they're obviously a little different. On the venture side, we really believe you need to take a non-dogmatic view to the space. There are a lot of things that are constantly changing, a lot of innovation that's constantly emerging. So we take a pretty diversified approach, about 50 investments. And the idea is we have room to continue to support and size up down the road, but we're getting a lot of exposure. The winners are going to be wildly asymmetric, very big return potential. Our prior funds have had thousand X's. So we want to make sure that we have those thousand X's in the portfolio. In the liquid fund, the idea is really to think about the different factors in the crypto universe. I'd say today the factors are Bitcoin, Ethereum, base layers, and DeFi. And there's some sub factors that look like they might be emerging in there as well. And really using that as a high level portfolio construction tool, which then feeds down into the individual portfolio construction dynamic. The last thing that I'll say is crypto has tended to have a four year cycle. I believe that's tied to Bitcoin's having cycle, the new supply issuance of Bitcoin gets cut in half every four years, roughly. We call that the halving. And as a result, you tend to have three good years of performance, usually two good years and one extraordinary year. And then you have a 70 to 80% correction historically. So that's one more layer of risk management that we apply to the portfolio on the liquid side, thinking about whether we're in kind of that capital letter bull market or bear market regime for crypto, managing to either absolute return or higher maximizing return rather than absolute return. So to the extent that Bitcoin is the bellwether for those bull, extreme bull and extreme bear markets, how are you assessing? Are you using technical analysis to assess? How are you trying to figure out what regime you're actually in, which is usually much easier to see after the fact than ahead of time? So for our high-level regime, we just use some long-term technical support levels. So that's one element where I think fundamental analysis could potentially lead one astray, particularly when you're looking at a cycle like this cycle where institutions are engaging in a material way. So I think we could pull forward the next Bitcoin cycle, have this be a super cycle. So to me, using a technical support level as that regime change indicator makes a lot of sense. And we use one that's sufficiently long-term such that we don't get a lot of false signals. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you where we are now. Despite on the day of recording, Bitcoin is down quite a bit. 
and we are still above the 20 day moving average, which I would call one of the shortest term, most Momo moving average indicators. So we are well into uh, confirmed bull market territory right now. So it actually doesn't end up being much of a day-to-day factor in our analysis. Right now is kind of the profit maximization, get into the fundamentals, find the best opportunities for the next nine to 18 months. How do you think about risk management? I'd say all analogous to equities investing. Re-underwriting dynamics are very important to me on the liquid side. So if we have a, depending on the volatility of the asset, if we have a 20 to 25% relative drawdown versus Bitcoin, let's make sure that our thesis is playing out. Let's make sure we understand the, the dynamics that are at play. And the re-underwriting decision can be to size up again to the original position, or it, it can be that there's some competitive dynamics that are changing or some emerging threats that lead us to either want to have a smaller position or be out of the position entirely at that moment. We're investing with a, a nine to 12 month time horizon. So the idea is not to trade in and out of these tokens and cryptocurrencies often. The idea is that we have a portfolio that has long-term winners. And I'll tell you, when you have drawdowns, when you have a fundamental story that's strong and intact, that ends up being a buffer, a risk mitigant, and those tokens end up outperforming in these drawdowns. How do you think about active management? Coming from a world where that was clearly defined to a world where maybe much less so. I think active management in crypto, there's an element of crypto investing across the liquidity spectrum that's still very much a venture. So even large cap, you could think of Bitcoin as being a maybe a Series C, a Series D type venture investment. So I think active, given how fluid competitive dynamics are, given how fluid the innovative environment is, active management and the ability to course correct either with something that we own or realizing that we missed something and that it's a long-term winner and we need to be there. I think there's actually a ton of value add that can come from active management in crypto. Of course, I'll tell you, Ted, my bias is also that there's a lot of value add from active management in equities as well. But that's a bias from having grown up in the industry. And I think seeing real consistent alpha generators in the space over time. As we look out, there's been a lot of interest, particularly starting with Bitcoin, Elon Musk buying for Tesla's balance sheet and Mass Mutual, and obviously Michael Saylor at MicroStrategy. How do you think about the impact of these initial moves onto the evolving ecosystem? I'll say a few things here. One, I think what's happened with just about everyone I know from traditional finance, you start with Bitcoin and your antennae are up and you start to pick up on, well, there's a lot of exciting stuff happening in DeFi on Ethereum. And what's this whole NFT space? NBA top shot and the excitement there. What are these challenger blockchains? What does that mean? So you end up opening your eyes to the diversity of this ecosystem. And I think we're certainly seeing in the institutional conversations that we're having a very quick progression from either Bitcoin alone or Bitcoin and Ethereum to start 
to looking at a broader set of crypto assets. And it's not a two-year progression. It's more like a three to six-month progression. Specifically on the announcements, Michael Saylor and MicroStrategy, a big tailwind for the industry, really one of the core catalysts in the fall. You look at Mass Mutual, and if you're one of their insurance competitors and Mass Mutual just added Bitcoin to their general investment account, you're going to seriously consider adding it because a big move in Bitcoin could affect their ability to price premiums in the near term. It creates real competitive dynamics. And then I think Elon, there's really a dynamic around Tesla's purchase where if you were your typical board a few months ago, you were saying, do we really need to consider Bitcoin? This seems like a fringe dynamic. When Elon buys, it becomes, why aren't we considering Bitcoin? After he's proven so many people wrong, is such a, an inspiration for young engineers everywhere and, and kind of like the vision of where we can go with renewable energy and space and all of that. There's this forward thinking mentality where it's like, man, we, we need to at least sharpen our pencils and make sure this doesn't make sense. So I think that's really a game changer. You see, particularly with Bitcoin, this question of how central banks will respond should Bitcoin get increasing importance over the next couple of years. What do you think happens with central banking activity in the digital asset space? It's quite interesting. At the beginning of last year, China launched a pilot of the digital RMB. And before that pilot launched, there was very little talk of central bank digital currencies among the Western big central banks. After that successful pilot, the rest of 2020 was the year of central bank digital currencies. The IMF held a, a full day event on central bank digital currencies in the fall. Brian Brooks, who was head of the OCC, talked a lot about a push towards central bank digital currencies and, and maybe having some of the private stable coins be a bridge to true central bank digital currencies. So when we think about what central bank digital currencies mean and what private stable coins mean for crypto, that really comes down to this idea of an advancing regulatory regime, one in which you start having KYC in the wallet, again, in a thoughtful way over time. And that kind of gets into, if you'll uh, allow me to talk about like the multiple years out type of really interesting things that you could imagine doing, you can start thinking about taking securities off of venues and allowing for peer-to-peer -peer securities trading. And by peer-to-peer, -peer, that could be in these decentralized exchanges that we're kind of like talking about now with Uniswap and SushiSwap. You can imagine a world where startups incentivize users to come use their products by giving away equity, like true, true equity. So the example I like to give is Elon starts a new company for his autonomous ride sharing network. And he says, hey, if you take a ride, we're going to give you a little bit of equity in this new company. And if you contribute your autonomous Tesla into it, we're going to give you a little bit of equity for every hour that your car is in there. Tell me how quickly that network bootstraps and just crushes Uber or Lyft in the markets where it's operating. And then you can get into wild dynamics where retailers incentivize people to come in on Black Friday by 
by giving them some equity for, for every dollar they spend in a few hour period. And you get into these like blurring of stakeholders and, you know, how does Walmart attract people when they're only growing earnings at 10% a year and an upstart is growing their store count by doubling every year. And so you get into very interesting dynamics quickly. What's your perspective on where regulation will have a role going forward? We think that regulation is going to have a very big role across the crypto ecosystem. I loved your uh, podcast last week with the acting commissioner of the CFTC talking about how regulation has been one of the big advantages of the U.S. commodities and securities markets. And I completely agree with that. I think regulation needs to be thoughtful. It needs to be supportive of the innovation that's happening here. I've never seen a cadence of innovation like what I see right now in the broader crypto universe. It's global, but in many ways, we can direct it toward benefiting different jurisdictions, whether it's the US or another country that wants to be crypto supportive. And I very much hope that we see supportive regulations come into place in the US. In thinking about how regulation transforms this universe, it takes things like decentralized finance from being a really interesting parallel universe that broader traditional financial institutions are a little hesitant to interact with, and it brings it into the mainstream fold. I think 2020 was a watershed year from a regulatory perspective. We had some very positive pronouncements out of the Office of the Controller of Currency around federally chartered banks being able to custody crypto, federally chartered banks being able to run crypto network nodes. And what that did was lead to announcements like the one last week from Bank of New York Mellon that they were planning on custodying crypto. There was a great quote in the journal about how from uh, Bank of New York Mellon about how it's going to be three to five years before crypto is fully integrated. That was the quote, fully integrated into the traditional financial system. I was just floored. I don't care if it's three to five years or 10 years, but to have Bank of New York Mellon talk about that what was very, very impressive. But I think regulatory clarity is an important part of that. And KYC in crypto wallets, again, done the right way, done in a measured way and done in a thoughtful way will likely be a big part of that as well and leads to some very, very interesting dynamics when you think out a few years. So with all this excitement in the space, how do you think about the bear case? Given how anti-fragile and resilient this open source, global and open competition market is, the, the bear case really comes down to regulation. That's been the bear case for a long time. And I said 2020 was kind of a watershed year for regulation in crypto. And the market agrees with me because I look at what Bitcoin has done, again, just as the largest market cap proxy. And I think Bitcoin breaking out to a new all-time high and continuing to move higher is really a reflection of that regulatory de-risking to a good extent. So when we think about writ large regulatory de-risking, we're kind of going down the right path. But now we're getting into this question of, well, okay, KYC in the wallet. There are a lot of different ways that that can be implemented. How do we implement that in a way that doesn't kill off the innovation that we're seeing in DeFi, while at the same time make sure that these are financial rails that are monitored and that aren't used by bad actors or are rails where we can at least minimize the usage by bad actors? Because guess what? Cash USD 
is used by bad actors. And that doesn't mean that we outlaw cash USD. So I think it's like the hope would be a similar open-minded approach to regulation, but that's certainly where the risks lie. And we have a new administration in the US where we've gotten some positive initial reads but still TBD. And that's a real risk. And I think all of the major market participants are ready and willing to participate in that dialogue. We have good intentions and are super excited about where things could go over time and want to see the US in particular be a really big part of this. But but this is a global phenomenon and it's really exciting. Right now, Your firm, for example, has venture investments. You have liquid, though it sounds a lot like there are sort of more liquid forms of underlying venture investments. And we have Coinbase going public in the not too distant future. How do you think about when this entire crypto world starts to converge with more traditional capital markets in the eyes of institutions? I think the theme of convergence is a very big high-level coin fund theme. And we kind of saw the breadcrumbs tied to that over the course of last year. And I think that that's just like significantly accelerated. We have conversations frequently with the big investment banks, with commercial banks, and they're thinking about ways that crypto can play into whether it's wholesale payments, whether it's consumer divisions. Yields right now in DeFi are much higher than the traditional world. How can traditional actors offer that to their customers. There's some really interesting dynamics here, though. So the CEO of PayPal was interviewed in December, and and he said, you know, for customers and PayPal, very big event, watershed event for the space. In the fall, they started offering crypto buying and selling for users. He said people that use the crypto functionality in the PayPal app, 50% of them are daily active users. So there's this real engagement and there's this really big engagement benefit to crypto, which I think a lot of traditional financial players are starting to realize. Square is seeing that as well. And I think we're going to see it's a little bit of crypto's Trojan horse. Visa, MasterCard picking up on this as well. I think we're going to see a lot of additional activity. And by the way, the big players in crypto like Coinbase are going to be all over this as an enabler for bridging the traditional financial institutions and their particular niches of the financial markets into the liquidity, the users, the engagement, and really the design space and functionality of crypto. Great, Seth. Before I turn to some closing questions, I'm just curious to ask you what you're hearing from the institutional side in terms of their interest and where they're engaging. It's quite interesting. We've Since inception, we've had a lot of really good institutional conversations, but September was really a light switch moment when those conversations went from, sure, I'm willing to do a monthly or bi-monthly conversation to get the big picture to, okay, how do we implement? Do we do only Bitcoin? Do we do Bitcoin and ETH in a fixed ratio? Do we expand beyond Bitcoin and ETH? Do we that do that internally? Do we do that with active funds? Do we do that as venture? Do we do that as hedge fund or a combination? So really light switch moment last fall. And I'd say 
a broad base of institutional engagement, I think, fully reflected across the podcast discussions that you've had in this series. Everyone from sovereign wealth funds to endowments to foundations, defined benefit pension plans. But to be honest, this initial wave of institutional purchasing has been concentrated in hedge funds. And in corporate balance sheets, the few very big corporate balance sheets. And then we're starting to see broader engagement in the institutional landscape writ large. In those conversations, when someone's close to the edge and then they reach the tipping point and they engage and they invest, what do you typically see as the key part of the case that gets someone who's done their research over the hump? What's fascinating is what resonates with one particular institution could be completely different from what resonates with another. But that's actually the beauty of the diversity of this ecosystem. There are institutions that are all about finding the fastest horse macro hedge. And Bitcoin is really what resonates. But then we have conversations that start out with, you know what, I don't really get Bitcoin. But man, the Ethereum ecosystem reminds me a lot of growth equities, and I'm just super excited about what's happening there. So what's great about crypto is it's as fundamental a technology as the internet. It spans verticals, it spans use cases, it spans even macro. And I think once we understand what a client or a potential client is looking for within their portfolio we can then direct them into the part of the ecosystem that's the best fit for their needs. Well, Seth, I want to leave a little bit of time for some closing questions. So what is your favorite hobby or activity outside of the crypto ecosystem and your family? Work and family are are big components. I love angel investing. I love traveling often for work or with the family and getting out on the slopes as well. What's your most important daily habit? Reading the journal, the FT, the Post, and the Times every morning if I can. And why? I read the journal every day, and then the others kind of trail off just based on how crazy things are when I wake up. I think the journal is the most underrated source of context and alpha in like any asset class that you're investing in. Everyone assumes it's information that's already out there, so you're not going to get much value from it. And the reality is most people, because of that assumption, just don't read it religiously. And you get like the pulse of where sentiment is. The journal in particular is such a good Fed source. So you kind of pick up on like what's happening in the Fed weeks or months before it comes into the broader consciousness. I find it's been so helpful in shaping my investment thinking. What's your favorite book? I haven't read fiction in a long time. I read a lot of nonfiction, but I'll talk about fiction. I love magical realism. Salman Rushdie, Gabriel Garcia Marquez, I'd say Borges. Magical realism has always been one of my favorite areas to read. What's your biggest pet peeve? Slow responses to things that should be simple yes, no answers. And how about your biggest investment pet peeve? Well, this goes back to my equity days. I would say a lot of people on the buy side like to talk about how worthless the sell side is. And I actually think the sell side, and I'm talking sell side research in particular, and IBIS consensus, right? Having consensus numbers out there, I think that's so, so important to properly functioning equities markets and having those like aggregators of sentiment and kind of like where people are on even micro questions about specific companies. I just think the 
sell-side research and their work around estimates and consensus is incredibly important for equity market functioning and massively underrated. And people complain about it all the time. And that, that's one of my pet peeves. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? I think my parents are very intellectually curious. My dad's an MD, PhD, medical researcher. My mom has a master's in teaching French. And I think just teaching me that the more you know about something, the more interesting it is. So if you can create that like basic intellectual scaffolding, then you can spend hours or days or weeks researching that area and find it incredibly interesting and make connections that others maybe don't pick up on. So that served me incredibly well in equities research and, and now in crypto research. One more before I ask you about mistakes for our premium members. So what life lesson have you learned that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? A lesson that I learned recently, which I had a little bit of a hint about before, was there's no substitute to working in a growth industry. Having this secular growth tailwind for your business, whether you're employee number three or the founder or employee number 1,000, it's just luck breaks in your favor much more often, you see so many different opportunities from a business management perspective, from a career management perspective, when you're in an industry that has very strong secular growth tailwinds. So I, I'd say that's one recent discovery that I would have loved to have learned earlier, but I've been very lucky throughout my career. So that's a, a nice to have. Seth, was a fascinating dive. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks so much for having me, Ted. Lots of fun. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you found a nugget or two to take away and apply in your investing and your life. If you'd like what you heard, please tell a friend and maybe even write a review on iTunes. You'll help others discover the show, and I thank you for it. Have a good one, and see you next time. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. All opinions expressed by guests on this show are solely their own opinion and do not necessarily reflect those of their firm. Manager's appearance on the show does not constitute an endorsement or investment recommendation by TED or Capital Allocators.